It was the evening of the 1st of November, 1920. The place was Dagshai Prison in the Punjab, northwest India. Private James Joseph Daly, 1st Battalion, the Connacht Rangers, number 35232, sat alone in his cell, the condemned cell. As he sat there, he must have thought of his comrades. He must have thought of the Rangers, of other days, of happier days. He must have thought of his friend Joseph Hawes. Joseph Hawes, with whom he had wished to talk a few days before, the permission was refused. He wondered if Hawes thought of him. What Hawes thought of him? I never, I, I never met Jim Bailey. I never met Jim Bailey until I met him in Dagshire Prison. Before our trial. For the first time that I got acquainted with him, and I couldn't get acquainted with a better man. I was glad that I met, that I met him. Because Jim Daly was a hero. Jim Daly was 20 men rolled up in one. Perhaps James Daly thought of Till's Pass, the quiet Till's Pass in his native Westmeath. Perhaps, indeed, he thought of his mother and the letter which he had written to her some weeks before, on the evening after he heard his sentence, a letter which read, My dearest mother, I take this opportunity of writing to you to let you know the dreadful news that I am to be shot on Tuesday morning, the 2nd of November. What harm it is all for Ireland. I am not afraid to die, but it is thinking of you I am. That is all. If you will be happy on earth, I will be happy in heaven. I am ready to meet my doom. The priest is with me when needed, so you need not worry over me. I am the only one of 62 of us to be put out of this world, but I am ready to die for my land. God bless you all, hoping to meet you all in heaven some day. I hope, dear mother, you will be put about, but keep a good heart. I know it will be hard on you. I hope you will get a mass said for the soul of your son James, taken from you for the sake of his country. God bless Ireland. Also you, your fun son, Jim. Daly, the silent, enigmatic young man, would have been amused, perhaps, if he had known that one of his friends, one of the rangers, was writing a poem about him, a poem called The Ballad of the Mutiny of the Devil's Own, a poem to be published some years later, where he said of Jim Daly, Our special hero in our midst, James Daly was his name, and manfully he stood his trial, and thought his crime no shame. The court they found him guilty, and Sid Lawford then did say, on the 2nd of November will be your dying day. The 2nd of November, now 50 years ago. I wonder, did Daly think of what future generations might have thought of him? He seems a young man without vanity, but perhaps 
he wondered. As far as the poor men were concerned, the mutiny was a total failure. He, my husband often and often quoted through the years what was said on Calvary, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They mm. did not know. That I will always stress, the Connacht Rangers did not know that what they were doing was going to end everything for them. Remember, they came home here, they were discharged in ignominy. They came home here and for 50 years they've been the, been the forgotten men. James Daly would have shaken his head and smiled his slow smile and said, Ah well, it's all for Ireland. Old days, the wild geese are flying, head to the storm as they faced it before. For where there are Irish, there's bound to be fighting. And when there's no fighting, it's Ireland no more. Ireland no more. There were several causes for the Connacht Rangers' mutiny in India in 1920, but I suppose the most immediate cause came, strangely enough, from County Clare, came from Private Joseph Hawes. I was home on holidays before prior to going to India. I was home in, in, uh, in vacation leave, like, you know. And uh, I was at a hurling match in Tober, in my own parish in Tober. And I used to always play hurling, you see, before ever I went away in the army. So I went playing with the lads when I came back. I was here. And uh, they, I went to, they asked me to know where I played with them that, then that Sunday. There was two matches on, see? And they, it was in need of the volunteers. And Clare was under a kind of martial law at the time, see? So I went to the hurling match. And as I was passing the police barracks, I had my hurley and my togs it's in, my, in my hand, see? And this, there, there was a one, there was a, a man with me that brought me up in, the, in his trap, in his pony trap, and we were passing the police barracks, which was quite convenient to the field where the match was going to be played. But the, the, uh, the police barracks was in Galway, and the match was played right on the boundary line. See, so as I was passing the barricade, see the sergeant and an officer, the sergeant of the police, Sergeant Fogarty, he who knew me well. And then there was a, an officer, I think he was a captain, was standing alongside him. There was two Crosley tinders and uh, two armoured cars outside the barracks. And uh, the sergeant called me, see? and he said, this man wants to speak to you. So the, the officer said to me, he said, what's your name? And I told him, what's, I told him my name, I said, I'm Joseph Hawes. He said, uh, what's your regiment? And I was in uniform. And he knew quite well what regiment I was on because my numerals and was my I had my badge on my cap and my numerals on my arms. See, and he said to me, "Do you know?" He said uh, that this uh, match today is proclaimed. These matches are proclaimed. I said, "I know nothing about them, or I don't care." Well, he said, "If anything happened to you today," he said. He said, uh, "The British Army he said won't be the British government won't be responsible for anything that happened to you." And I said to him, 
I said I was in the Dardanelles. I said I was in Palestine. I was in, uh, in Macedonia. I was up in Serbia. And I said, I came back, I said, and I went to Palestine. And from Palestine I went to France. And I said, well, while I was doing that, I said, in all that campaign, I said, nobody ever caught me by the hand. Incidentally, the two matches were concluded successfully by the simple expedient of removing the goalposts from County Clare into County Galway, which was not a proclaimed area. Shortly after this, Hawes returned to India, went back, in fact, to Wellington Barracks in Jalanda. But now things began to rankle. He had letters from home uncensored. He heard of the black and tans, heard of his brother on the run, and the thought of the match and Ireland began to prey on his mind. He began to think... He began to talk. Joseph Hawes, in short, began to think for himself. On the night of the 27th of June 1920, I was in the, in the, the wet canteen having a drink. Just a usual drink. Because I never drank a whole lot, see? And uh, I was speaking to... I was in company with Private Gogarty and uh, Private Sweeney and Private Lally. And uh, our conversation was about Ireland. And uh, I said to them, I said, we're doing the very same thing out here as the ten, at the Black and Tens and the British forces are doing in Ireland. And they said, what can we do about it? And I said, we can do a whole lot. I said, if you come with me and do what I have in my head, I said, we can do a whole lot for Ireland. They said, what is it? I said, well, we, we'll go into the guard room in the morning and we'll hand ourselves up. And we'll tell the commander of the guard that we'll soldier no longer for Ireland until the British forces and the black and tender withdrawn from Ireland. Until Ireland gets her freedom, which is justly due. Now, after a bit of persuasion and a, bit of, and a little chat, they agreed with me. And I said to them, well... Gogarty was, was, was of the same company as I was. We were in B Company. And Lely and Sweeney were in two different companies. So I said to them, well, there's only one thing to do now. I said, we'll go over to our bungalow, to the cock bungalow. And I know where there's a used sergeant's room there, small room. And we'll go in there for the night. And they said, why? Well, I said to them, I said, lads, I said, we'll be looking for one another in the morning and we won't be able to find one another because if uh, if we separate we may not be able to meet in the morning and uh, they said by God I think you're right so we went over to this disused room and we went in and bar- barricaded ourselves in and we lied down on the floor and before we lied down I took out my prayer book and I swore them in and I said, come what may, you'll stick by me. And they said yes. This mutiny, seemingly so sudden, was not entirely a surprise to certain far-seeing people in the Rangers, because all regiments, all the English regiments at this time, were indeed quite close to mutiny, because for many reasons 
perhaps anti-war feeling because here most of these men were veterans of the 1418 war. They had arrested and now they were back on 24-hour alert. Money matters were also a problem and, of course, you always had the heat in India. Mrs Carney, the wife of the medical officer to the Connacht Rangers, saw the other reason as well. Well, then they were getting letters from home and uh, on account of the black and tans. One, as far as I remember... His mother was killed, and the other, his sister, was either killed or wounded. And they were faced with this terrible problem. Here they were serving for the king, and under that self-same king's rule, their own people were being massacred by the Black and Tans. So on the morning of the 28th of June, 1920, Joseph Hawes and his friends marched off in Jalunda to the guardroom. They told the sergeant in charge... They would soldier no more until Britain had withdrawn from Ireland. Then the nine o'clock parade came, and Tommy Moran, another young man from Athlone, told his sergeant that four men were ready to fight for Ireland and they were in the guardroom. He'd like to join them. The sergeant called on Corporals Cox and Keenan to arrest Moran, but they immediately downed arms and joined him. By now the sergeant was somewhat worried and he decided to bring Moran in before Major Johnny Payne. Now, Morden and Major Payne had words, the were to say the least of it, not mild, and Payne dismissed him out the back way to the guardroom. But several of the men who were in front saw this and joined them all then in the guardroom. Meanwhile, Hawes and his friends began a session of singing and cheering, shouting, Up De Valera, Up Ireland, God Save Ireland. By now the officers, the higher officers, had at last tumbled to the fact that something was happening at Jalunda, and Colonel Deacon, who was the man in charge there, called the men to gather round him on the steps of the bungalows, went to the guardroom and released Hawes and his friends and began to talk. The Colonel, Colonel Deacon was our Colonel, and he gave a sermon to us about the loyalty of the Connacht Rangers, how they fought here and how they fought there, and all the honours that was in their flag. And I thought he had the, the lads swayed because he was crying and he said he was 33 years with the Connacht Rangers and uh, he told us to go to our bungalows and sit down and think over it and to be all forgotten so I took a face forward and I said to him I said every honour I said that you're, that you're after mentioning Colonel I said they, are all, they were all for England and I said there was none for Ireland but the one I said that we're going to that we're standing up by for today, can be put up on the top of the regimental flag because, as I said, it will be the greatest honour of them all, it will be one for Ireland. Now, this, the, the, the adjutant was further down the line and uh, I didn't hear what he said because I was too interested in, in the, what the colonel was after saying and I was afraid that the lads would break because he made such a pathetic speech. And uh, a chap from Tipperary called Coleman, he overheard the remarks of the, of the adjutant. The adjutant said to the sergeant major, when they all go back to their bungalows, put Hawes, to the gar- put Hawes in the garrow. And Coleman took a pace forward and he said, you'll get no chance of putting Hawes in the garrow because we're all going back to the, bar- the garrow. And he shouted out at the top of his voice, lift turn boys, he said, into the garrow, back into the garrow, which we eventually did. 
Well, now we had the officers on the one hand returning to their quarters and the rebels returning to the guardroom, uh, where Hawes decided that it was time to form a committee and they sent the men back to their bungalows, called them back into the regimental theatre, formed the committee and decided on a plan. They decided that they would uh, draw up guards and that they would run the garrison as efficiently as it had been run before. The first thing to do, however, was to remove the guard from the guardroom. This is what Hawes calls the loyal guard. This they did without much trouble, and they were replaced by a rebel guard. And then Hawes uh, sent two of the men to make what seemed to him to be the supreme gesture at that time. And uh, two couple of the boys went down to the bazaar, and they bought the makings of a tri- uh, the tricolour flag, the green, white and gold, and we got one of the tailors, one of the... Uh, Indians, for to stitch them together. And uh, we took down the union jack off the flagstaff and we hoisted up the tricolour. That was the proudest moment of my life when I seen our own flag of Ireland flying abroad in India in the heart of the British Empire. Hawes must have been a very orderly young man because he decided at this stage that they ought to set a guard on the wet canteen, which was the bar, in other words. And... Uh, the guard, in fact, found two of the rangers who were imbibing in the canteen and they were sentenced to guard that canteen for the remainder of the mutiny, which they did with great fervour, we're told. Uh, also at this stage, Hawes decided it was about time to bring in their comrades in Solon. Now, several more of the Connacht rangers were in Solon, which was 120 miles away. So two messengers, Privates uh, Kelly and Keenan, were sent to set out for Solon, the hill station, on the morning of the 29th of June. Now, whether they arrived successfully or not, uh, some people say they did, more say they didn't. Anyway, the message got through, got through on that morning to Solon. Meanwhile, back in Jolanda, uh, the medical officer and his wife had begun to notice strange changes. My husband and one of the colonels and I, uh, I want to bring this in at the beginning, I, I was then expecting my third child, and they took me for a drive, and as we drove along, you see, in one part you might meet a, a lot of peacocks. You dare not shoot them. In the next part, if you shot them, you'd be rewarded. But we were driving along, and I suddenly looked up, and I said, Oh, the telegraph wires are down. And my husband said, You're imagining it. I said, well, I don't know. It's not my imagination. We haven't had a storm. So that when we went back, they tested. They found that the wires were down. And the next morning, when he went into hospital, he came back very quiet, very quickly, and he said to me, he was looking very pale and very agitated. I said, what's the matter? He said, the, mut- the, the, the rangers have mutinied. And I said, what does that mean? I mean, I was very young at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I, I couldn't grasp what it meant. He said, they've laid down their arms and they've refused to take them up <coughs> for the king unless there's a a mutiny of the Indians, which of course meant the massacre of us all. Now, I was the only white woman with my nanny in the plains. All the women had gone, you see, up to the the hill stations, but I had refused to go. And I was in this isolated spot, and of course I did a very foolish thing, not having enough sense at the time. I got into the trap, drove up to the barracks to see the tricolour over the barracks. I didn't realise the seriousness of it. So when my husband came in to lunch, I said, um, what does all this mean? He says, it means the end of a way of life for these men. 
unless somebody can talk to them. Which Captain Carney, incidentally, was not allowed to do. Meanwhile, uh, while this was happening, um, further developments were taking place. Shortly after Keenan and Kelly had left for Solon, uh, an officer turned up. Uh, he was wearing a cap with a red band which denoted an appointment. A colonel arrived one morning with his care. A colonel Jackson. He was told that he was from Roscommon and that he came down from general headquarters from Sir General Monroe, who was commander-in-chief of the army in India at the time. And he said he was sent down to uh, negotiate with us and to see what our grievances were. And he came into the barracks with a white flag in his care. And his care was searched when he landed. And he had to come into the guard room, into the orderly room, and sit down under the tricolour flag and have and, and uh, had to negotiate with two lance corporals and five private soldiers. Now, what he wanted us to do was, he wanted us to hand to the, he wanted us to allow British soldiers to come in and disarm us. See? But we wouldn't have that. We wouldn't listen to him. So we were a couple of days arguing the point. See? And our proposal was, that we hand up, we take, we'd collect all the arms ourselves and all the ammunition and everything that any man was dished out of. And uh, that we'd place them in, in, a, in a bungalow and see that everybody handed back what we was dished out of military equipment to. And we'd put our own guard over them. And when the British soldiers would come in to take over the barracks, we'd have fallen in. The unarmed party would have one, fallen in and uh, the Aram party would hand over the Arams to the British soldiers when they'd come in. Now, the Seafold Highlanders and the South Wales Borders came into the barracks, and they were told, of course, terrible things about us and they're coming in, what we were going to do. When they arrived in barracks, they said they weren't true. In fact, we gave them water out of our water bottles. And our guard presented arms to them when they came in. And they got the order, Republicans ground arms, and they left down their arms. The guard that was put over the arms, the, the, the men that was in guard, left down their arms and marched out of the filling with us. And then they marched down to this internment camp that they had erected for us. And as we were going down along the road, to the, to the walking down to this camp, the soldiers came from every corner, out of every turn and every bend. They were stepping out and closing in on us at both sides. And at the crossroads, at any crossroad, they had machine guns turned on us. See? And they had a compound ready for, for when we went down to, to where the camp was. It was a, a bare-wired enclosure in the... nothing there but sand and built tents, and to put us into that place was, was something frightful in the middle of July, in, in, the, in July. It was awful. Mrs Carney takes up the story. Well, you see, shortly after that, they were marched down, and I was standing at my gate, and I've said this over and over again, and I will never forget it. I'm now 76. Those men were walking past my gate, down under, to, go, to go under canvas, 
some were like sitting on the backs of trucks. They were carrying cockatoos and monkeys and dogs and their pets and they they were just they just did not realize they knew they had made their stand they were feeling bitter about what was happening in Ireland but they didn't know what was going to be the end of it and they went down under canvas and nothing was prepared for them neither sanitation nor water now that I can vouch for uh, your husband made several representations about this well now the f- when uh, after this People were, men were falling down from heat stroke and he was working very hard in the hospitals with orderlies and nurses. I think there's only one nurse left and they, they, I hardly saw him because he was working so very hard and there were, at this time, there were five men put in a one-man cell and the temperature, as far as I can remember now, was from about 114 to 117. And to, to get that, to realise what that means, go up to one of the hothouses in the Botanical Gardens, mm. and you realise what it means. And my husband sent in his first report, and it was ignored, about the condition of these men, not only in, in the prison, but the men under canvas. He then sent in a second report. That also was ignored. His third report, he put in a word which is not used in army parlance, he said, in my opinion as medical officer, the treatment of these men is inhuman. Now, he was asked more than once, in fact several times, to, del- to delete this word inhuman, and he said no, he wouldn't, on any circumstances, delete that word. Because first and foremost, he first was an Irishman, then he was a doctor, nothing else mattered. And the stand he was taking was from humanitarian grounds. I mean, he had no axe to grind. In fact, he was jeopardizing his career by the stand he took. And they wouldn't take any notice of it. And when the, the mutiny went on, the men were marched onto the parade ground. It was then that he and the chaplain went into the middle of the parade ground and stood was this the time when uh, Major Payne is supposed to have gone up? Yes. Well, now, to get on to Major Payne, um, he's ac- accused uh, in both books recent, recently of being um, very excessively harsh on them. Well, you see, he was taking the stand of a, a regimental officer. And mutiny in an army is a very bad thing. Mutiny in any way is a very bad thing. and. Who am I to judge what anybody does? It's just mm. his conscience. I mean, he probably was obeying his conscience. And we were told at the time that he was taking a very harsh stand. I think uh, quite a few of the Irish officers took the same uh, same stand, mm. but they were acting as regimental officers. And mm. there's a, a degree between that and a medical officer, you see, a very mm. big degree, because they are f- for discipline, order, and you can't have either discipline or order. We were made suspect. A, because the Connacht thought such a lot about my husband. They knew that I was expecting a baby. They knew anything could happen in my bungalow. And the mutineers put a guard on my bungalow, which, of course, made us suspect straight away. But if we could go, uh, sort of pass on from there... Yes. Um, the 47 ringleaders were later put out in this camp again. That's right. And unsuccessfully... Uh, your husband again sought he their did. release. He did. 
and then they were brought back. He did, and he mm. went in and he examined each and every one of those 47 mm. men, and he gave his opinion about the 47 men, that they were not in any physical condition to battle with what mm. was going on. After the um, mutiny had quietened down, and when, in effect, it had been over, the officers um, came to the assistance of the, the families of the mutineers. That's right. Um, what straits were they in? They were in very, very bad straits because as far as I know, the, the men had received no pay. Naturally, they couldn't receive pay. I mean, you receive no pay if you're, if you're a mutiny in anywhere, no matter what you do. And they had no money, they had no nothing. And their wives were in very bad circumstances. And remember, those wives were accustomed out there, the soldiers' wives were accustomed to having their servants. And that's something they couldn't have had at home. And uh, they didn't know what they were facing. And the officers and their officers' wives all certainly came to their rescue at that particular time. But the damage was all done. I mean, I think if they, if this is my only criticism, I think if all the officers, the Irish officers, apart from the fact that they were serving British, British officers, if they had thought first and foremost they were Irishmen and given those men help and advice, even surreptitiously. Uh, this raises the question of the reaction of the officers. Uh, did they, who were made loyal, uh, did they, in your opinion, overact, overreact? Well, I can only speak for myself and my husband. When we walked into the officers' club, I'm naming no names, but Irish officers turned their backs on us because of the stand my husband took. <laughs> So was the mutiny at Jalunda crushed savagely. Now we move to Solon, where Daly and his friends were ready to rise out, and I think we couldn't do better here than read an extract from the court-martial evidence given by Major W.N.S. Alexander, D.S.O., who was in command at Solon. He says, At Solon, at about 2100 hours on the 30th of June, 1920, I received a report at my house that the men were marching to the officers' mess. I went up to the officers' mess, but just before my arrival, this party had left the officers' mess and were marching towards the Simla Kalka Road. A parade was ordered for 900 hours, 1st of July, 1920. As a result of a report from Captain Badham, shortly after that hour, I went down to C Company's lines, where I found all duty men of C Company except the sergeants, who were accompanying me, fallen in on the veranda of a bungalow. I spoke to them and pointed out that their action in not parading which they stated was a protest against the employment of British troops in Ireland would not have the slightest effect on the policy of the British government. And I also pointed out to them the serious results which this action would entail on themselves. A man named Daly, 35232, stood in front of this parade. He informed me that similar action would be taken simultaneously by every Irish regiment in the army. 
and that the news would be published in every paper in the United Kingdom. Whatever influence I had said may have had on the less determined of the mutineers, this was promptly wiped out by this man. Meanwhile, a few minutes after I had finished speaking, Colonel Woodridge, commanding the Ambala Brigade, arrived. He also went down and spoke in my presence at considerable length to the mutineers. Whenever his arguments appeared to be persuading some of the mutineers to return to duty, number 35232 daily intervened and succeeded in wiping out the good impression made. The mutineers were given one hour to decide and report to me in writing whether they would return to duty or not. I received a reply that they would not do so unless their demand was complied with. At about 1500 hours on the 1st of July 1920, I received a report in the orderly room at Solon that the rifle racks were being broken and the boxes containing pouch ammunition. I accordingly sent down Lieutenant McWheeney to try and restore order. He came back in about 20 minutes' time and reported he could do nothing. I then enlisted the services of Father Baker, the Roman Catholic chaplain, and eventually the mutineers were persuaded to give up their rifles and ammunition, which were placed in the magazine at about 17.30 hours. I gave detailed instructions for the posting of a guard of 20 rifles equipped with 50 rounds of ball to be mounted as a guard over the magazine, and issued strict order that in the event of any attempt being made to extract the rifles from the magazine, they were not to hesitate to shoot to kill, if necessary. An extract there from the court-martial evidence given by Major Alexander, who was in command at Solon. He mentions there Lieutenant McWheeney. Lieutenant McWheeney now takes up the story as he found it. The daily in my recollection at Solon spoke very respectfully and carefully and what he said, you know, he seemed quite reasonable about it all. He wasn't, he saluted before he spoke and that sort of thing. The thing was conducted on entirely correct lines. Um, Adam, unfortunately, was not the best character um, to deal with the situation because he was not a very well-liked man particularly. He was he was a rather over, slightly overbearing man, a bully, I think, really, and which is shown, I think, by his attempt to sort of impose discipline on the men in the way he did, like trying to call them to attention, which is obviously a very poorish thing to do because it's no good giving an order unless you have the means of enforcing it, and he had no means of enforcing it. So it was we were very sort of taken aback when he tried this gambit on and come off because obviously put him in a very awkward position all he could do was sort of retire from the scene rather uh, rather sort of with the wind out of the sail so to speak. Well, how would um, Alexander have dealt with it? If Alexander had been there rather... Uh, yes, Alexander would have carried a lot more weight. He was a much more impressive figure. He was uh, an older man. He, uh, sort of, he was a very cold, dry sort of man if you like. But he was an oppressive sort of man in his own way, and I think he would have handled the matter better than Battle would have. Uh, so, as it's just uh, saying, there seem to be two periods in, in Solon. The first is that period, they go back to their house, and then the second is the raid of the armory. Or well, the alleged, well, I tell you what happened then, actually. Uh, you see, as soon as they marched off that evening, as soon as the daily had marched the men away, we went back into the mess. There were only about five of us there. And, uh, Despite what uh, Pollock got that wrong, there were only about five of us there. It was quite informed because it was only a company of attention. Uh, Alexander arrived in the mess and we all sat down and discussed the situation. Um, 
Alexander asked us what we thought about the matter, what we thought would happen, and this sort of thing. And the junior officers all thought that the matter could be dealt with um, on the basis of keeping it within our own, within our, within the family, so to speak, like the family, not to take it to the higher authorities. We thought that possibly we could talk the men round, they'd probably get over in the morning. Uh, and but we all saw, of course, everybody saw that David was the focal point. And we thought that if the worst came to the worst, Daly would have to be by some means detached from the rest of the company and got rid of, you know, or taken away so that the men would ha wouldn't have a leader because he was obviously the entity, he was the leader of the business. Daly and his men had, incidentally, also hoisted the tricolour at Solon. Later that night, on the day in which they had returned their arms, it would appear that Daly's followers changed their minds and there was a horrid consultation and for some reason Daly also changed his mind and led his men with bayonets in their hands towards the foot of the slope leading up to the armoury. They were challenged by the patrol. A call rang out, Halt, who goes there? Daly, we're told, wore a white shirt and was easily discernible from his followers. Some accounts say that Daly called out, Jim Daly of Tills Pass, Westmeath. Other accounts say that he didn't, but he was easily recognisable as the leader anyway. It seemed, however, to the group near the armoury that Daly and his men would not halt, so they opened fire, and when the engagement was over, uh, three men were seen to be lying on the ground, Eugene Egan, who was wounded, Sears and Smith, who were killed in the engagement. Father Baker had rushed in and intervened and stopped the fighting. Uh, carrying their dead and wounded... The attackers withdrew and, and Daly renewed his promise to Father Baker there would be no more violence, but he did not say that he would change his mind. A full 40 out, 48 hours later, uh, two companies of the Royal Sussex Regiment marched into the camp at Solon and took up the 28 who had deserted the hut in which the tricolour was still flying. They marched them out and brought with them John Egan in an ambulance and brought them all to Dagshire Prison to await trial there with the men from Jalanda. And now we're in the grim prison in Dagshire, in the company of Joseph Hawes, it is the night before the execution of James Daly. Because we were locked up. We were locked up the night before, of course, as usual. And uh, we knew well he was going to be executed in the morning. What sort of night did you spend? Well, we, I didn't sleep at all. I couldn't sleep. And I don't think any of my comrades slept at all that night. We were praying the most of the night. And we were saying the rosary when, the, when they marched him into the yard. Did you hear the shot being fired? Oh, so doubtly, why not? So they were fired outside our windows. Could you almost see the yard? I, I seen the yard. I was looking at the, at the execution. Would you describe it for me? Hmm? Would you describe it for me? I will. <clears throat> the Grim Daly came around the prison, the, the corner of the prison, and marched between two soldiers. The priest, Father Baker, who was the prison chap? Who was the the Catholic chaplain 
in Soren. And he attended dailies for three days before, the, before the, his execution. And he was with him that morning. And uh, the execution officer and the prison officer that was in charge of his lift in the smith and about 10 or 12 soldiers with fixed bayonets marched each side of Daly. They marched in a, in a, in a line each side. Of, two soldiers, Daly was between the first two, two before the first file of soldiers. And uh, when they came along, this, I, I could, we could see the tables outside the windows, the table of, where there was 13 men, a sergeant and 12 soldiers. They put the rifles laid down in sandbags. And daily was, there was a chair placed about five feet from the wall, from the prison wall. <coughs> and there was, there was uh, two weights hanging out the, the bottom of the chair, or this big armchair. And uh, a rope put across the rungs of the chair and two big weights hanging off of them. So that when... The reason that we... That I thought that they were there for, and I found out afterwards that that was the reason, so that when he'd be shot, when he was sitting down the chair, that the chair wouldn't fall. Now, when they came in front of the chair, they got right turn. And Jim Daly faced, faced us. And uh, he was ordered to sit down in the chair. And there was also ropes tied onto the arms of the chair. And he saluted the firing party, who was already had their rifles in their hands, and they were laying down in the rest of their elbows on, the, on the sandbags. And he said, Is it good morning, gentlemen? He said, Is it here you're going to do it? And he took off the bandage off of his toe, off of his eyes, and put it down the ground, put, it, put his foot down. No, he said, he was ordered to sit down in the chair, and he said, no, I want to die, he said, like an Irishman. When I'm shot, he said, I will fall to the ground. And the prison officer, of course, the execution officer, said, you must sit down in the chair. And Daly said, no, he said, I'm going to stand up. So the pre-father baker walked over and he put his hand around his neck. And he said, Jim, he said, will you make another sacrifice for Ireland? And he said, father, he said, what greater sacrifice can I make than, I want, than the one I'm about, to go, that I'm about to make? And father Baker said, well, you'll do it for me, he said. Will you do it for me, Jim? He said, sit down in the chair. I will, father, he said, but don't let them tie me. And now before he sat down in the chair, he said, he said, ye might think, he said, that I'm afraid to die. And some of my comrades, he said, that's looking out to the bars of their cells there, he said at me. He said, well, someday, he said, with the help of God, they'll be released. And maybe, he said, in civil life, he, some of ye, he said, that's going to execute me this morning, he said, might meet those men. And ye might say, he said, that I'm a coward. Well, he said, if ye say that about me, he said, you're telling lies. Because, he said, I'm not afraid. And with that he sat down in the chair and he folded his arms and he turned up his head and the, he, the, the priest said, 
Kim, he said you won't be tired at all. He had, a, he had a word with the execution officer, and the execution officer allowed his request. He told it in time at all. And uh, he turned up his, his head, and he's, the priest told me, Father Baker told me this, because he was standing quite close to him. He was prepared, he was going to anoint him. And he got leave to anoint him. And odd, every priest, every Catholic priest in India was down on their knees at that hour, hope, praying that he'd live long enough to be anointed. Because I think it was the first time that a man getting executed was ever anointed. And when the, the officer lowered the, the hand catcher that he was holding his hand, the white hand catcher, the 13 of them fired at him. Daly fell over one side. And Father Baker jumped in. And Father Baker told me after the execution that Jim lived. He said he drew four breaths. He said, <laughs> I said, Father, I said, I thought you'd, you'd, be, you'd be shot. And he said, and he said, I was crying when he came into my cell. And I said, he said to me, why are you crying? He said, I have uh, daily beads for you here, he said. And a and last letter, he said, last note to you. It was written on, on a, an opened envelope, an opened up envelope. And he said, why are you crying? I said, Father, I said, why wouldn't I be crying? I said, my best comrade, I said. My comrade, I said, is dead. I said, I wish I could stand alongside, I wish I was standing alongside him, I said, this morning, and die with him. So he said, you should be proud, he said. And glad, he said, that one of your comrades has gone straight to heaven. Because, he said, when you heard this volley, that volley had gone, he said, an hour ago. Jim Daly's soul, he said, went straight, he said, from that prison yard, he said, straight into heaven. Hmm? What did he write to you on the note? He bid me goodbye and told me to pray for him. And he said, I'm giving you my beads. And he said, pray on those beads for me every time. He said, that you say your rosary, he said, remember me. And, dear. Uh, he said, up Balbriggan, up Balbriggan, because Balbriggan was burned by the tens. He said, up Balbriggan, and he said, up Easter week, and up the men of Ireland, and up the Connacht Rangers. Now, Lieutenant Smith, who was in charge of the prison, he came along to my cell, and he said, Hawes, this was after Daly's body had been taken away, and he said, I have a very terrible ordeal for you, he said. And I said, what is it? What in the name of God, I said, is the ordeal now? He said, the, the remains of James Daly, he said, his blood and all is in the ground. And I want you, he said, to tell me, he said, who you want. Which of the, what the prisoners that you want to go with you, he said, that your comrades that you want to go with you, to clean up, he said, the yard, because I said, if my men do it, he said, ye mightn't break it. So I named out five fellas. And we went out and we got a, a shoebox from the warders that was gardens, from the soldiers of those gardens. They gave us a, a boot box, like. And uh, we gathered up all his, all his blood. It was all down the ground in one big liver. And there was pieces of his backbone stuck in the walls. Yeah. And we put all the, the, the gravel that was in the ground as well, a lot of gravel that was where the blood was. We gathered up all and we put into two two boxes. We had to get in a second box. And they were given to the priest. And the priest told us that he would get him interred with the body 
strange bizarre aftermath to Daly's death some months later in India and this story is told to us now by Geoffrey O'Donoghue the O'Donoghue who lives now in Athlone County Westmead. In 1914 I joined the Connaught Rangers in Kinsale as a lieutenant and I went out to France in May 1915 and remained in France until the regiment went to Mesopotamia in December. When I was in Mesopotamia, I got fever, and I was invalided back to India. And from India, I was invalided back to England. After a few weeks in England, I returned to the 3rd Battalion of the Connaught Rangers in Kinsale and after five or six weeks I was drafted out again to France and joined the 6th Battalion of the Connaught Rangers in the 16th Irish Division. I remained there until the end of the war. After the war was over I left the army and in 1919 I took another notion and I joined the Dublin Fusiliers. I wasn't very long with the Dublin Fusiliers when I was drafted out to India again. When we arrived in India I found myself in a place called Multan in the Punjab. Uh, after some time there, uh, we heard about the mutiny of the Connaught Rangers, and I decided that something should be done about it in the Dublin Fusiliers. So myself and three comrades, uh, men by the name of Kerwin, Fitzpatrick, and Murray, we uh, went down to the bazaar and we got a tricolour made by the Indians. And on the eve of St. Patrick's Day, 1921, when it got dusk at night, I ran up the tricolour on the flagpole. The next morning, uh, next morning, when the muster parade came along, the tricolour was flying where the Union Jack should have been flying. At any rate, there was no noise about it, only that an officer ordered that the flag was to be taken down. Uh, that went on very well, and there was no more about it. 
So, after some time, we were drafted up to a place called Soren in the hills, the Simla Hills. And everything went fine until one day I was brought out of the orderly room where I worked. And uh, I was marched to the guard room. And there was no charge preferred against me. So I was kept there along with my three mates for three or four days until we eventually found ourselves in Dagshai, in the prison. After spending a week or so in Dagshai prison, we were put on a train on a narrow gauge railway and brought back to the plains. And we eventually found ourselves in the guard room in a place called Calaba Barracks, Bombay. After three or four days there, we were put on a boat on we were escorted to the boat on the escort. And on the way home, we, had, we were in our Indian kit. We had neither money, cigarettes, or anything. Thanks to the goodness of some of the Irish stewards who were on the ship coming home, they kept us supplied with cigarettes and a drink if we wanted. When we got eventually landed in Tilbury Docks, we were met by an armed guard of about 20 soldiers, the regiment I forget, and we were brought to some jail in London. De O'Donoghue. Meanwhile in the months following the execution of James Daly, Hawes and his colleagues were brought back by boat to England to various prisons, where they spent a very bad time indeed, bad conditions, bad food and worse treatment. Hawes picks up the story now as we go back again to the Connacht Rangers. Tell me, before the mutiny happened, were you proud of the Connacht Rangers? Always. I was always proud of the Connacht Rangers because they were always men and they always stood together. How did you manage when you came back? You were dismissed from the British Army, obviously no pension from yeah. them. How nope. did you manage? No. Well, I went home to my own people, see? And uh, I had to go to work because we had a very small little place at home and my father was dead and my mother, my mother was at home at the time and my brother and my sister. And uh, I, had, uh, I had five brothers and two sisters altogether. But they, they had immigrated, see? They had immigrated. Some to America, more to England. Yeah? And uh, when I came home from prison, I had to go to work. Yeah? Though I was a skeleton, but uh, I carried on. And then, about in the month of April, or before the month of April, I got married. Did you tell me, did you get any pension from our government here? I got it. I got the the big pension of ten and six in nineteen thirty six. Of ten and six pounds a week in nineteen thirty six, and the reason I got the ten and six was I had I had over five I had five years service with the British Army, and if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't get any pension. Tell me now, when when this program is broadcast, it will be fifty years since Jim Daly died. Yes. 
Um, are you glad you did that? Hmm? Are you glad? I'm proud that I did it. And if I was a young man tomorrow morning, I'd do the same thing, if it was necessary. You might think it's strange to hear me saying this. I am glad that one of my comrades is left behind in India because he will act as a connecting link between two partitioned countries by the British government who part- by the British government who partitioned them against the wishes of the, of the peoples of both countries. And someday, with the help of God, those two countries will be united. They'll be under the one government, both Ireland and India. And if ever that happened, I hope that there'll be someone, some generation, it might be in future generations, and I hope it will be sooner than that. And then, I hope that there will somebody advocate and try and bring back poor Miranda and to bury him in Ireland, somewhere in Ireland, for which he lost his life.